sources of information. And in Joan's case, she not only gave us uh, interviews at great length, interviewed her many times, but also kind of turned us on to her mother's diaries and and correspondence, which were very revealing, and also the correspondence and diaries of Mary Bancroft, who was not only her mother's friend, but Alan Dulles' mistress. So I think that, you know, from a personal point of view, was, was, was very important as well. Yeah, you know, because we've heard a lot about John F. Kennedy having all these uh, flings and that. And when you look at Alan Dulles, you think of this college professor or something, you know, it seems that he's even more of a flander than John F. Kennedy. I mean, do you want to comment on that, or what's your opinion? Yeah, I think he was definitely, you know, thought of himself as a ladies' man. At one point, he was bragging to his mistress that he'd slept with 10 women. Uh, maybe JFK could have outnumbered him on that one, and his mistress thought that was kind of a small number. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I found even more, actually, what, what was more to me telling about Alan Dulles was not, you know, his, his adulterous relationship, so much as the way he, he related to his own family. And Joan said, you know, that he had this kind of, the way she described him and his relationships to his own children was this guy who related to his children that they were guests somehow in his own house. He had this kind of, you know, cold detachment uh, from everyone around him who was uh, he was supposedly close to. On the surface, he could be very charming. You know, he was the life of the party and all that. But underneath was this kind of cold detachment is, is the best way of putting it. And, you know, Karen, my colleague, you know, came to think that he was a psychopath based on just, you know, many of the things that we saw him do in his personal life and political life. Well, uh, do, do I have this correct, that he was writing letters back to his wife, bragging of flings that he had? Yeah, I mean, he he put his, I think, you know, Clover Dallas, his wife, was a very sensitive, artistic woman. She was not meant to be married to a man like Alan Dulles. She was unclear why she'd even fallen into his clutches. <laughs> she could never explain, really, why she even married him, but... He kind of laid siege to her and married her within like after three weeks or something after they got together. So she was always, I think, confused by him and finally said very sadly, very painfully in one of her diaries late in her life, you know, this man doesn't say anything to me. He never talks to me about anything, not just about his work, but about anything. And, you know, we know that he later tried to steer her into the hands of Dr. Donald Ewan Cameron, who was probably the most notorious figures in the MKUltra program, this mad scientist who ran the so-called sleep room experiments up at McGill University, where, you know, these poor unsuspecting patients, many of them just suffering from sort of garden variety nervous disorders, postpartum depression, or whatever, mostly women, were put in the clutches of this mad scientist who was conducting mind control experimentation on behalf of the CIA. And involved putting these people in these deep sleep states through overdoses of drugs where they would be played endless tape loops to try and erase their minds and replace bad thoughts with good thoughts. I mean, we're talking about really barbaric stuff. And Dulles at one point, you know, she at Clover Dulles, who was very distraught about the marriage, was put in touch with Cameron and he wanted her to come up to Canada. And fortunately for her, she didn't. But their son, Alan Dulles Jr., who came back from the Korean War with a, a brain injury after sustaining a wound there, he unfortunately was put in the hands of an MKUltra scientist who subjected him to experimental insulin overdose therapy, which is a very brutal treatment that involves convulsions and, and uh, in some cases, even death. You know, Joan witnessed 
this when she went to visit him in this New York hospital where Alan Jr. was put, and he was begging her to get him out of there, and she said it was a very traumatic experience. Well, you called Alan the psychopath, and um, his wife and mistress had a nickname for him, the shark. That's right. That's how they called him, sort of affectionately, I guess, but it's very telling. Yeah, I mean, he was a shark. He was, you know, driving relentlessly forward, this cold guy who really saw people, and and that's why I use the uh, image of chessboard in the title. And it comes up again and again. You know, he talks about that, but he really, and his brother, I think, who loved playing chess against each other and kind of blocked out the whole world while they were playing chess, really saw the world as their chessboard, saw people as pawns. I found this really fascinating when I read his oral history and imagine what, what kind of psychopath who, as I make the case for, and if you do believe this, that he was responsible for playing a central role in the assassination of Kennedy and then sends condolence letters to the Kennedy family. That was chilling. After each Kennedy is killed, you know, he sends condolence letters after Bobby is killed to Teddy and so on, and after JFK to Bobby. But he then gave an interview to the JFK library, and he sits down with his friend, his buddy Tom Braden from the CIA for his oral history, and he's talking about, oh, yeah, JFK had lived, he might have been a great president, you know, and he puts on this mask of, you know, kind of grief, and and then, uh, and it always was a mask with, with Dulles, but then he's talking about the actual operation at the end of this interview, and you, you can't help but feel the excitement and satisfaction that he got from the operation of a lifetime. And you just, you know, you sense that, like, he would love to just brag about this thing. We pulled this off because he loved ops. That was his, the thing that really turned on Alan Dulles. And it, the way he's talking about it in this Kennedy oral history is like, well, it was like a, you know, a, a, the mechanism of a fine watch that everything had to work just perfectly. And he talks about it like a, almost like a chess game. He, I think, uses that metaphor at one point. Every piece had to be moved properly for Kennedy to be killed that day by, and he's saying, of course, by Oswald. But I think he's really saying it's by the CIA masterminds who put this thing together. So it's, you know, deeply creepy. (laughs) Well, you know, another thing you talk about, Dulles having this mask, a conversation which I was not aware of was, uh, I think you mentioned secondary guy, subordinate uh, Dick Drain. Yeah, who worked on the Bay of Pigs operation. Right. Maybe you should just discuss that briefly. Dulles is out of the country, and he's flying back home, and here is he's going to be briefed by someone who's going to tell him that all hell's broken loose, everything's gone wrong. And just give us a brief insight into that, because that's almost worth the book alone. Again, there's so many things that are just of, of interest and telltale of the Dulles mind. Yeah, well, Dick Drain is like thunderstruck, as you say, because he picks Dulles up at the airport. He thinks Dulles is going to be eager to hear every detail about what's going on so he can, you know, Dulles can get back to President Kennedy and, and maybe urge him to take action or whatever it is. And yet he seems kind of sublimely in, indifferent. And he uh, drives him back to his home in, in Georgetown and Dulles invites him in for a drink and he thinks, okay, now he's, we're going to get down to business. And still it's like, you know, He's asking Drain about other things, like, uh, well, I'm supposed to go to the White House tomorrow to meet, the, you know, President Greece. You were in Greece, Dick, weren't you? You know, uh, can you tell me a little bit about him and so on? So just seems to be completely indifferent to this unfolding crisis in Cuba that's about to bring down his career. Well, here's what I think was going on with that. And I, I think this is indisputable at this point. I think the CIA knew and Dulles knew that this motley brigade of Cuban exiles was doomed to fail, 
these 1,100 guys who were being landed on the beaches. They were being sent as cannon fodder to their deaths, uh, to their doom, because what we know from the CIA's own internal reports on this that were done by Lyman Kirkpatrick, the uh, inspector general after, and by uh, a CIA historian later, that Dulles had stocked the Cuban operation with the C-level guys, the worst guys in the CIA. That's what they were called in their own CIA internal reports. So Dulles had gone around saying, yeah, well, we're only going to have the best for this operation. But in fact, he put the losers in charge of that. And the people that should have been there, including one who had literally written the book Amphibian Operations on Landings, because he had experienced a lot himself during World War II in the Pacific, he was kept away from it. So the CIA veterans couldn't believe this. But I think the plan was it was supposed to fail and then, of course, force Kennedy's hand at the height of the crisis and force Kennedy into sending in the full power of the U.S. military to save this debacle. And Kennedy, of course, doesn't do that. He stands his ground. He never wanted to do this in the first place. He felt sandbagged that he had to do it to avoid a major political you know, backlash if he pulled the plug on it since it had gone on so long. But he's not going to expand it into an all-out military operation, and he pulls the plug. So that's the astonishing thing to Dulles, that Plan B didn't work. Plan B was for Kennedy to be forced into sending in the Marines and the Air Force. But the actual operation that he'd mounted was a loser operation and was meant to fail. In the space of less than a year, because Dulles leaves in November of 61, you have Kennedy versus Dulles on Congo. Then you have Kennedy versus Dulles at the Bay of Pigs. And you have Kennedy versus Dulles with the OAS in France. And by the end of that, it's pretty much Kennedy realizes he made a mistake. He should have never let this guy on, never let him stay there. You know, and so then he essentially, him and his brother, with some help, I think from, I think you, you state some help from Schlesinger. You know, they decide that Dulles has to go and that the CIA has to be reorganized. In fact, that was very interesting. The segment you had on Schlesinger is something I didn't know that Kennedy had actually tasked Schlesinger with doing a reorganizing plan for the CIA. Yeah, I, I was really interested to come across that, too. You know, I, I had told the story of how sorry, the Kennedy presidency had split in two in my book, Brothers. And so I knew I needed to address that again in this book, but I didn't want to just repeat myself. So I was looking for a new narrative way to tell that story in a fresh way. And when I came across Schlesinger's, Arthur Schlesinger's journals, some of which were collected and published by his sons, but a lot of the material was not. And so the full journals were at the New York Public Library. And when I came across those, that was my sort of light bulb because Schlesinger, I think, is a fascinating fly on the wall during the Kennedy presidency. On the one hand, he has one foot in the CIA world. He socializes with these guys. He's former OSS. He's buddies with Dick Helms and other CIA guys. They, they're part of the same Georgetown party circuit. On the other hand, of course, he is loyal to Kennedy. He's this new frontiersman, and he's kind of in the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, and he advises Kennedy not to go ahead with the Bay of Pigs. So he's becoming more and more of a critic of the national security hardliners while he's serving in the Kennedy White House. And he happens to be a great writer. So he keeps these very meticulous daily diaries, which, as I say, are at the New York Public Library. So as I'm reading these day-to-day -day entries, you can see Schlesinger 
starting to break away more and more slowly from his CIA people and side more and more with the Kennedy White House and realized, you know, particularly at the Bay of Pigs, that this thing's out of control. The CIA is out of control. The Kennedy administration, if it's going to succeed and, and control its own foreign policy, needs to discipline this, you know, out-of-control agency and get control of it. So he makes a bid to Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs and says, hey, I know you want, you know, he famously said, Kennedy, I want to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces and scatter into the winds. He was so mad. But Schlesinger says, look, put me in charge of this reform effort and I'll oversee the overhaul of the CIA. And he throws himself into it. And you see from his files at the Kennedy Library all his research that he's doing into the CIA. And he's interviewing people. He's gathering all this material. And, of course, because he is a, a liberal, I mean, a lot of his materials are from The Nation magazine. They're from The New Republic. They're from critics on the left of the CIA. And his final sort of proposal is this detailed proposal for what to do with the CIA. And it's pretty extensive. Number one, he wants to take the name CIA off this agency because he thinks it's been so tarnished. It's a bad brand. He wants to break it up into different components. He wants to put it much more firmly under the control of the White House and the State Department. So he basically wants to take this rogue agency that Harry Truman himself, who created it, and others are now worried has become this, this out-of-control force in American life. And, and break it into different pieces and really put it firmly under democratic control. And he presents this to Kennedy, and of course there's major pushback from the agency and from people like Maxwell Taylor, who's you know has now become a military advisor to Kennedy in the White House, and from the whole sort of national security wing. And you know Schlesinger's efforts are defeated. But that's a really interesting story about this internal sort of upheaval that's going on within the Kennedy presidency after the Bay of Pigs. Did uh, Schlesinger have sort of um, – he seemed to me that he was really unable to handle looking at the facts of the assassination. And I think that's a real uh, letdown. Do, do you have any comments about that? Yeah, you know, I think Arthur Schlesinger is a fascinating guy, and I, I do try and tell his story – because he was a really bright guy, and he knew intellectually, he knew in his head what had happened. He told me, I interviewed well, but him see, twice. Okay, good, but you're making, you're making a case for him. And as I read, I mean, it's like people are clinging to every word he says, saying, see, you can never be sure. But if you take the idea that he knew and he couldn't handle it. He, he knew and he couldn't handle it. That's, tr that's exactly right. I think he knew there was a conspiracy. I think he basically said this to people, but but he then, for public consumption, he would phrase it this way. He said, I'm an agnostic when it comes to the question of a conspiracy. So it's a coward's way out. Because he knew if he were to come right out and say, look, obviously this is a conspiracy and it was, you know, it came out of the CIA and the Pentagon, all the party invitations on the Georgetown circuit would dry up. He would be persona non grata in all the worlds that mattered to him, the New York and Washington and Boston chattering classes. Yeah, but, you know, uh, he was anyway. They, he was just uh, – well, you go into that in the book where he goes in one day and Johnson doesn't have anything for him to do. Well, but that's different. So, yes, he, he immediately is iced out by LBJ because LBJ knows that he's a Kennedy guy and that he doesn't want this Kennedy intellectual hanging around the White House. 
So LBJ isolates him right away, and, and you know, Schlesinger gets the message, and he resigns. He's one of the first Kennedy guys to, to leave the Johnson administration. But that's different from the sort of circles that meant everything to Schlesinger. I'm talking about the Harvard-Cambridge circles. I'm talking about the New York media circles and party scene. I'm talking about the Washington power scene, you know, and he desperately wanted to remain part of those worlds. And so he intellectually knew that Kennedy had been killed by a conspiracy, but he couldn't go all the way and publicly say that. So that's why on his deathbed, he tells his son, who tells me this, that he says, Dad, do you have any regrets about anything you didn't write? Is there a book that you would have liked to write that you didn't? He goes, yes, I should have written a book about the CIA because it undermined our democracy. Well, he's clearly saying that at that point you know, in his life as he's dying. And, you know, he couldn't bring himself all the way to confront the CIA, which I knew, which I, but I strongly suspect he felt was behind the murder of the president. If he would have done what Len is saying he should have done, he probably justified it in his own mind. The New York Times would have never asked me to review John Newman's book on the cover of their book review thing. And he actually gave it a pretty good review. Mm-hmm. I think he walked yeah, sort of a... A line, you know. He also endorsed, in a way, uh, Anthony Summers' book, didn't he? I think he gave him a blurb too. His book conspiracy. Yeah, I think he, I think he did. I think you're right about that. Yes. And he met with Oliver Stone, you know, and Oliver was getting all this heat after JFK came out. But of course, then in his diaries, he kind of dismisses Stone too. But um, at least he was talking to these people, the researchers who were doing the best work, and he was keeping an open mind. And I think he knew they were right. But he himself didn't have the courage to go all the way and write something that could have actually, at least within those intellectual and liberal circles where he still was a important voice, it could have had an impact. Well, I'm harder on him than you were. I think you're making a case for him. <laughs> oh, I, th- I thought I was pretty hard on him, but maybe you know, I could have gone after him more. I, but no, I, you don't I, have I, to. I basically call him a coward, and I, that's what I think he was. He was an intellectual coward. Yeah. No, that, now you're in the ballpark now. That's good because so many people on the other side of the, you know, the lone assassin side, well, you know, who would have talked, look at Schlesinger and, and, you know, and then when people, you know, talk down about a movie, about Oliver Stone's movie, I mean, you're getting into the Jim Garrison story, really. There's someone who tried to do something and that's courage there, Jim Garrison. You know, but, and, well, all these people love to bash Oliver because that somehow proved that they were like, you know, much more hard-headed and, you know, and grounded in fact, which is bull****. It's like they went after Oliver because they were cowards themselves. And Oliver was opening the doors to, you know, all these skeletons that they were found deeply disturbing. Well, I he's mean, exposing cowards in the media. And that, he's uh, exposing the cowards who didn't do their job at the same time. Right. I mean, look, the American media, you know, I have to say, after a lifetime in it, and after writing these two books on the Kennedy story, I just have complete contempt for it. I mean, it's all I can do to even talk to some of these reporters who call me up, because either they're completely stupid and they have done no work themselves and they're lazy and ignorant, or they're, you know, they have some agenda. They're, you know, they're, they're an asset in some way or another for the agencies who want to keep covering this up. So, you know, the American media, I mean, whenever they do stumble on a, a big story, it's usually they're stumbling on it or it's being leaked to them. And then they give each other awards and pat each other on the back. But whenever there is some kind of breakthrough, usually investigative breakthrough, it's as a result of a internal government conflict 
that leaks into the media. So, I mean, you know, the amount of true enterprise reporting, investigative reporting that's courageous and original, you know, you can count on one hand those stories in probably our whole lifetime. Yeah. Now, I have one other question just to elaborate on this. So do you think that there can be a part two to this? Do you think that there's enough meat here for researchers to continue this trail of Alan Dulles being behind the assassination? Well, you know, I'm still a believer that CIA is sitting on those documents, those 1,100-some documents that uh, they're withholding that Jeff Morley's been going after for years. They're sitting on those for a reason. So, yeah, I mean, I think if we ever pry those loose or someone leaks them, we need Ned Snowden, frankly. I mean, you know, those documents, I guess, are sitting in there uh, in the archives. Someone could leak them. And, you know, I publicly call on someone, a conscientious person who works in the archives, to leak them because that would be abiding by the federal law. The CIA is now obstructing justice. They're obstructing the JFK Records Act. So I call on uh, government officials who have access to those documents to release them under law, under federal law. So, yeah, if we get our hands on those, that probably will shed some new lights. Maybe we'll see what William Harvey's, where he was traveling in November 63 for sure and things like that. Right, because you mentioned the media. I, I think in the book or in an interview, you talked about Don Hewitt of 60 Minutes going into this, and then they decided to drop the whole thing because they got orders from upstairs that we're not going to cover this story, even though there's a lot of... Well, can you just elaborate on that? Is that in the book, or was did no, you? That, yeah, that was in Brothers. Brothers. But again, that speaks to what I was saying earlier. The elites knew the truth. The elites, the ones who were plugged in and had you know half a brain, could figure this out really quickly. There was a conspiracy to kill Kennedy. It was just too absurd. The whole thing. This guy who couldn't shoot straight with a bad gun, you know, pulls off the marksmanship feat of the century, you know, and then has quickly silenced himself by some mafia errand boy. I mean, it was all just absurd. And anyone, you know, could just see that. The American people saw it instinctually right away. So the elites were all telling each other this. Yeah, it was a conspiracy. Don Hewitt, when I interviewed him, one of the top investigative names in American journalism, the creator of 60 Minutes, basically said, yeah, I knew it was a conspiracy and probably was involved CIA guys and mafia and and you know Cuban exiles. That's what he told me. It's in Brothers. I said, well, why didn't you pursue it? Why didn't you break the case? He goes, oh, well, we never could find enough. You know, that's the you know again. They always excuses for why they didn't do their jobs. Ben Bradley, I sat down with, the, probably who was the closest person in the Washington press corps to President Kennedy, frequent guest. Uh, he and his wife at the White House. They were pals, and he wrote a whole book about this. Right, how good buddies they were. Well, I said, why didn't you like you try to solve your good buddy's murder? You know, I sat down with Ben at the Washington Post, where he still had an office after he retired as executive editor. And at least he had the guts or the honesty or whatever to tell me basically the truth. He goes, well, it probably would end my career because people knew I was close to JFK and they would have thought I was obsessive and this and that. And that's probably true. It would have ended his career. But he, I'm sure, knew, could put two and two together, and he knew probably generally what had happened. But the Washington Post, again, massive failure. To, and, and even, they, you know, because the Post usually goes behind government investigations. That's how they get really brave. And people start leaking during these investigations. They had the opportunity of a lifetime during the House Select Committee on assassinations and the church committee to go behind those government investigations and do their own original work 
Instead, they sort of, you know, they play the opposite role off in the New York Times and Washington Post. They criticize the investigations. They make trouble for the members of Congress who were involved in them. They undermine them. So it's cowardice. I mean, and at least Bradley had the, the, the uh, honesty to admit it. Getting back to Len's point about Schlesinger. See, Len, you, you tried to compare Schlesinger with Garrison. But what people leave out is that yeah. Garrison's career was destroyed. I, I didn't try to compare him. I just said that Garrison was courageous and Schlesinger, uh, upon my reflection, is gutless. Well, but that's a, that's a very big, big decision to make. I mean, do I want to burn the rest of my career like this Jim Garrison guy who almost went to jail? Well, what okay, kind of career you know, is it then? Well, most people, I think what David's saying is that most people compromise their way out of it somehow or they rationalize yeah. their way out exactly. of it somehow. Exactly. Know? Yeah, but then we I have mean, to – How many people do you know who are successful people self-immolate that way? I mean, it doesn't rarely – it rarely happens. Yeah. Well, okay, I won't say what I'm thinking right now, but in that case, we have to commend David for writing about this. Because for self-immolating. I, I, yeah. <laughs> okay, I didn't want to say it. You did. Um, because I've heard, you know, researching this, some of the other interviews you've done on, and frankly, one host and a couple of people who called in. I mean, it's pathetic. This is almost – an orchestrated effort to discredit some of your work because the people who come up with these criticisms, in order to get this far into the case to, to name the things they're talking about, you have to have done research. And it just defies all logic to think someone can, you know, some of the questions you've had to face on other shows. I mean, it, it's, um, you know. Well, so I think, I w- I think what ha- the way that the CIA, and let's, you know, let's call it like it is. The CIA still, I think, runs a disinformation machine, and I still think they have an interest in the Kennedy case. They certainly did, you know, back in the 60s and 70s and so on. But I still think, you know, there's that machine is still in operation. I think what happened with Brothers is that uh, the Bugliosi book, which was subsidized, I believe, there's no way that the publisher publishes over a thousand pages like that without losing money. So I think that was a subsidized operation. Bugliosi had assistance writing it and putting it together. And I was told by my own publisher, Simon Schuster, that Bulios's book was actually, the pub date was changed to go right up against mine. So someone made that decision. It was a political decision. So what I faced then when I went out anywhere on the media circuit when Brothers came out was this pit bull, you know, prosecutor who was in my face and distracting attention. And that was the way they counter-programmed me. It's counter-programming. It's the way they operate. Or they, The other thing is Hollywood is very important to them. It's more important than books. And so the only reason I think they're really concerned about books is because they can trigger Hollywood films or TV series. And so I tell the story in Salon Magazine, what happened, my, you know, Salon.com, what happened to me with Brothers in Hollywood. And... You know, what happened there was Lionsgate optioned it. They had it all set up to go. John Hamm at one point was going to play. He was very hot because Mad Men was really big. And it was uh, their show. Was, uh, so they thought they had a great opportunity to set this up as a TV miniseries. And every network, even networks that initially were very excited, suddenly pulled the plug on it. And instead, what you had was Bugliosi's book, of course, that got optioned by Tom Hanks's production company and, I guess it eventually went through different iterations, but it turned into Parkland, right, Jim? 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. So that's what how they play that game. They are very well connected. The CIA has its own. I'm in fact putting out a book under my imprint, Hot Books, by Nick Scow, who wrote Kill the Messenger, about the CIA's continued manipulation of media in Hollywood. They have a very active office in Hollywood to control their image. And so now it's the same thing. There was a huge interest in Devil's Chessboard in Hollywood when it initially hit. It's a great epic story. And of course, Hollywood's now fascinated by the dark side of power with series like House of Cards and the Game of Thrones and so on. So it was right up their alley. And, you know, we see with Spielberg's new movie, Cold War, sorry, espionage is hot and all that. So it was a natural. George Clooney demanded a copy of the book, the first copy, hot up, you know, the advanced copy, the galleys. His agent drove it over to his house personally one weekend. And then when he realized what part three was all about, saying that, you know, Dulles was behind the assassination of the president, he flipped out because he knew that was that he knows that's a career ruiner. Same with other big names. Kevin Spacey looked at it, Brad Pitt, on and on. They all t- turned it down because I, I think it's the third rail for them. They don't want to be Oliver Stone. Oliver Stone himself, who's become a friend over the last few years, you know, told me, David, they'll never make these books into a movie or a TV thing. And I think Oliver's correct. So that's the way they operate. They have their own rival projects. Those are the ones that get out. They also respond to books like mine by selectively leaking documents that supposedly are, you know, are hot stories and that distract the media. And so they did that by selectively leaking, you know, this internal bio or parts of this internal CIA biography of John McCone that Phil Shannon and his credulity, former New York Times guy, ran with as the hottest story in the world. Well, I was all set up to be excerpted or to write a piece based on my book for Politico. In fact, one of the key people of Politico loved the book and called it a masterpiece. That was his words in an email to me and it was all set up and then at the last minute the editor there pulled the plug on my book and said no no we're 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 going to run this Phil Shannon thing instead you know I was set up to you know be interviewed on Al Jazeera America even pulled the plug on me at the last minute I was literally in a car in Manhattan on the way to the studio to be interviewed and my publicist got a phone call and said no no it's been canceled and he was stunned and he said what do you mean and he emailed the producer at Al Jazeera and he got a one-word reply back, and that word was politics. Wow. So What a revelation. Know, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's a war. It's a war of ideas. I'm not demoralized by this. I'm Irish. I love a fight. I know it's a fight, right? And it's fighting, as Ishmael Reed once said. And, you know, we're, our people like you and me, we're in a war. And we're losing the war, frankly. I mean, ever since JFK, since Oliver, you know, sort of turned the tide briefly, I hope that Devil's Chessboard sort of further emboldens our side and we take, you know, sort of the momentum back a little bit. I have a saying that the best story in the War of Ideas wins, so I put a lot of effort into the way I wrote this book. So it would be a gripping read. It can be sort of positioned as a great spy epic, because it is in a way. Well, Um, it's a history lesson as well. Yeah, as as well as a history lesson. But, I mean, I want to affect public opinion. And so, you know, I am being blocked by the media gatekeepers here and there. But they can't stop everything. It's like water through the cracks of stones. There is an alternative media, thank God, still. There are programs like yours, Len. 
there's, you know, Salon, there's Mother Jones, there's Democracy Now! and Amy Goodman. There's, there's local radio. You know, local radio has been amazing. And shows like Coast to Coast, you know, that go across the country nationally or, or Pacific. Oh, my God, I heard that Coast to Coast one. One thing that I thought was very fascinating, if you follow the story, you have Dulles in Bern sort of beginning the Cold War. Then he comes back, and the book has a very, very fascinating chapter on Dulles, Nixon, and Alger Hiss. Right. right? Okay, and it's sort of the way you depict it, sort of like the Dulles brothers were the guys in the back room, both encouraging and manipulating Nixon in his pursuit of Alger Hiss. That is accurate. I think that's a really important and fascinating transitional period in American history because you have this really critical transition from FDR's Washington and the New Deal era to, you know, the Dulles and Eisenhower era with sort of Truman being this transitional presidency in between. And what was happening there was a, a political war over the future of the country. As I say, if Roosevelt and the New Deal, say Henry Wallace, had been, you know, sort of had continued the Roosevelt era, it would have been so vastly different. There may not have been a Cold War. Certain people, like the Dulles brothers, might have even been brought to justice. There would have been a public accounting of what had happened, the collaboration with the Nazis and so on. But the Dulles brothers and that wing of the Republican Party were brilliant, and they, they realized that the anti-communist witch hunt and that fervor that they were ginning up and generating after the war, you know, basically saying the New Deal was riddled with communist spies, which was absurd. You know, that was their weapon that they used to purge Washington of those elements that were threats to them. And it was hugely effective. And, of course, you know, of course, Stalin and the Soviet Union played into their hands as well. Paranoid, you know, despot in the Soviet Union, I'm not saying was all sort of uh, a creation of, of Dulles, the, the Cold War. But he certainly, that wing of the Republican Party certainly exploited it in a masterful way. And one of the people that they, they do create and impose on America, I believe, is Richard Nixon. He is a creation of the sort of Dulles-Dewey wing of the Republican Party. They sponsored his first run against Jerry Boris. And Jerry Forrest was, you know, a young congressman from Southern California who was sort of one of the leading symbols in Congress of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. He'd been a socialist and uh, a union activist and uh, had some very radical, innovative ideas about what to do with the American economy and how to extend social security as a sort of a, a social safety net. And he wanted to nationalize the banks and he wanted to go after the oil industry. And he was their worst nightmare. You know, Republican corporate America's worst nightmare. So he was a target in any case. And they were able to get two birds with one stone by running this young Dick Nixon against Forrest, knocking the new dealer out. And then Nixon becomes their weapon, this, you know, this witch hunting weapon who begins to purge Washington as a whole of the New Deal legacy. And it, of course, it, historically speaking, it was really Nixon's pursuit of Alger Kiss and his success in getting him indicted and convicted. That really encouraged McCarthy. So you, yes. this really began the whole Red Scare, too, the second Red and Scare. Absolutely. It yeah. just takes off from there. And then McCarthy, of course, becomes his own Frankenstein, it even threatens Eisenhower and Dulles, and then he has to be dealt with. And we always think, oh, it was the Army McCarthy hearings that finally brought down McCarthy, which is true. 
But the person who drew first blood was Joe McCarthy, uh, who really went after him at first and started to uh, defeat him was Alan Dulles. And I tell that story in the book. Yeah, because (laughs) this is ironic. It's because Dulles won't turn over Bill Bundy, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, he keeps coming after every department institution in Washington. You know, his brother, Foster Caves, under the McCarthy assault and gives McCarthy basically everything he wants and purges the State Department of just about every, its best and brightest, basically. And then he comes after the CIA and Alan says, no, that ain't going to happen. I control the CIA, you know, off. And McCarthy rages and throws a tantrum, but he, Alan Dulles basically backs him down. And I think, you know, there was hardball played there because I think, you know, they had compiled a lot of dirt on McCarthy by then, his sexual proclivities and all of that. And they were prepared to do whatever they needed to do to defeat him. This is the CIA. So it was Alan Dulles who began the downfall of Joe McCarthy. All right, that's it for me, Len. Okay, Thank good. Well, I've got two two last questions. And one I was going to ask, what was the most surprising fact about Alan uh, Dulles that you discovered? Uh, that's too big, Len. There wasn't one <laughs> there was, that was just too surprising? I think we surprising. talked about so many of them. I know I, I, I can't I can't pinpoint just one. You know. Um, okay, okay, fine. Yeah. But my last question then was just a, maybe a brief comment about, you know, when Truman wrote about that Frankenstein article, you discussed a little bit how Dulles actually changed the record. And I think you alluded to it earlier, but this is the fact. If he couldn't get his way, he would just go back and report something different. I mean, he met with Truman, and Truman wouldn't back down from the article, correct? Right. Well, you see, this is the way that intelligence you know, agencies often operate. I mean, basically, John Newman has written a whole book, at least one book or more now, I guess, on how they did it with Oswald. You create a legend. You create a documentary record about something in order to alter reality itself. And so Oswald becomes one thing in the files and something else in real life. So, yeah, what happened was Truman writes this uh, you know, bombshell of an op-ed in the Washington Post during the very emotionally fraught days right after Kennedy's assassinated. And there it is in bold print in the Washington Post, the former president of the United States who created the CIA, Harry Truman, is writing that the CIA is out of control. And that not only is it threatening democracy overseas, but a democracy at home. And what are people to make of this in the days right after Kennedy's killed? So Alan Dulles flies into action. He tries to get Clark Clifford, who's a Washington power broker who's close to Harry Truman, to lean on Truman to get him to retract the peace. But that doesn't succeed. Truman, of course, is famously stubborn. So Dulles flies down to Independence, Missouri himself to meet with Truman. And again, you know, wheedles and, and pressures him and tries to get him to take back this piece, saying, look, it was you who created the CIA. You certainly wanted it to be an aggressive thing, but Harry Truman will have none of it. You know, he stands by his piece. So he comes home, Dulles to Washington, and what does he do? He writes a letter to the general counsel, Lawrence Houston of the CIA, and says, you know what, I talked to Harry Truman, and it seems like he really didn't know what he was writing, or it was written by somebody else, one of his aides, and, you know, presents this picture of Truman as if he's a senile guy who uh, has been either manipulated somehow or, or didn't even know or think through the consequences of what he was writing. And that goes into the CIA files, and you can still see when you sort of, you know, Google this and, and look into this online, that there's then this, it takes on a life of its own. It becomes the CIA official version of what happened. Oh, yeah, Harry Truman was manipulated somehow, and he didn't really mean to write this. And so that's out there now. 
Dulles was the guy who, who set that in motion. But Truman reaffirmed what he thought in his letter to Look Magazine, right? He did. He reaffirmed at least twice that I referred to. One was in a letter to Look, and one was to the former CIA director. Sowers. Yeah, who had congratulated Harry Truman on this op-ed piece. And, and Truman writes back saying, yes, you know what I was saying was correct, because that was what we intended the CIA to be, just an intelligence gathering agency and not this kind of covert action rogue agency that's going around the world doing all these sinister things. So, yeah, I mean, clearly he intended to write it. He stuck by it, and he continued to stick by it despite what Dulles was saying. Well, the, the thing that uh, impressed me about that incident, that if Alan Dulles was retired, why would he have to fly out there to do this? And, I mean, he's still behind pulling all the strings. Yeah, he, he's still the main advocate. He's still the, the guy who's the godfather of that agency. Right. And he's, he's the old man. In other words, he's the affectionate godfather, you know, as he's affectionately referred to by the CIA old boy network. He's the guy that they all look to. And so this is, I'll leave you with just this final thing. This essentially is what I came to conclude, that I do believe to a certain extent in the great man uh, theory of government. Uh, Dulles didn't operate on his own. It wasn't, I'm not trying to say, like some people have said, that he's just somehow this evil Superman. He operated within a system of power, and that's why I write about C. Wright Mills, the great sociologist who wrote The Power Elite, C. Wright Mills was on to this at the time. He, he was analyzing Dulles people within this as members of a system of power that included the key security officials, included corporate figures, included people on Wall Street. So Dulles only operated, I think, on major issues when he felt there was a consensus within the circle. But at the same time, I've now, at this point in my life, after running a company myself, after dealing with business people and being in the political world, and seeing, frankly, how history was changed with the assassinations of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King, I've come to appreciate how individual leaders who have unique abilities and unique connections and are uniquely persuasive can actually affect history in a major way. And Alan Dulles was one of those people. He was someone who was uniquely connected throughout those power circles. He was connected in the Wall Street world, and he was connected in the corporate world. He was connected in the national security world. He was connected to overseas interests. And he was like Dick Cheney on steroids. And so when he came forward and said, look, this president has to be removed for the good of the country. He's an aberrant president. He's a weak president. He's putting the country at risk. He was one of the guys who could develop, one, maybe the only political figure at that time who did have the connections, the gravitas, the stature within that power elite to make something like this happen. And so there's no other person, I think, who fits that kind of criteria. And again, I'm not saying he acted on his own. I'm saying that he was a very key central figure within this power network. And when he finally made the decision, the old man will take care of it, as the Russian priest said at the party where Peter Dale Scott was, that, you know, instilled confidence in everyone. And for CIA officials and operatives to know that the old man was behind this, that gave them the blessing that they needed. Now we continue with the following piece. Thanks to Tony Gosling from BCFM for this. He's interviewing author Adam Labor about his then new book on the BIS. This is from June 2013. 
Adam Libor's book, The Tower of Basel, has just been published, and it makes for frightening reading. The bank provided a lifeline to Hitler in the 1930s, helping fund his arms build-up, and through the war was providing the Nazis with much-needed foreign exchange. Well, I spoke to Adam about the new governor of the Bank of England and his secretive employer earlier this week. My name's Adam LeBourne. I'm an author and a journalist. I've written a book called Tower of Basel, the shadowy history of the secret bank that runs the world, and it's the first investigative history of the Bank for International Settlements. The BIS is a really fascinating institution, and in one line, it's the most important bank in the world that you've almost certainly never heard of. And I'm interested in how power is exercised in the world and the role of international institutions. I've previously written a book about the UN and its failure to confront or deal with genocide. The BIS grew out of the same kind of era, in a way, as the United Nations. The BIS was founded in 1930 ostensibly as a means to manage German reparations payments for the First World War, i.e. the financial penalties imposed on Germany for the First World War. But the real reason the BIS was founded was to have a place where central bankers could meet outside the supervision of politicians and away from nosy journalists. The BIS was founded by an international treaty, which means that it's similar to the United Nations or a foreign embassy. It's technically extraterritorial in Switzerland. The Swiss authorities, although it's based in Basel, the Swiss authorities need the permission of the bank's management to enter the bank, and its assets can never be seized, even during times of war. It can't really be sued under any international Swiss law, and the management enjoy a number of similar privileges to diplomats. The Swiss authorities, if they need to have permission to actually even enter the premises, then that isn't really a part of Switzerland, Adam. No, it's not. I mean, and I tried quite hard to find out the exact legal niceties of this, but the bank wasn't particularly helpful. But as far as I could see, I mean, they did send me a copy of the treaty that uh, founded the bank and the 1987 agreement with Switzerland. But as far as I could see from reading it, it means that, yes, technically, it's the same as an embassy. It, it, or the United Nations is legally an international body. But it's also a commercial bank, and it only has 140 customers, mostly their other central banks, and it makes the profits tax-free. It was founded in the 1930s at, at a time when the League of Nations was active, when there was this sort of idealism that you know, nationalism had led the world to the horrors of the First World War, so transnationalism and supranational institutions really the way forward. One of the things I found fascinating looking at this bank was that for many years it was very anonymous. After the Second World War, it seems there was a certain amount of embarrassment and that they were actually, even though they were one of the most powerful banks in the world, based with an anonymous door, and but the bank was based over the top of a chocolate shop opposite Basel Station. I mean, the bank was very anonymous before World War II. The idea, you know, this was a, a different age when the elites and governments and powerful people didn't, weren't really interested in being accountable. There's something of that spirit still continues. I mean, nowadays, every two months, the 60 big central bankers of the world meet there. People like Ben Bernanke from the Federal Reserve and Mervyn King and his successor, Mark Carney, to discuss the global economy. And someone who's been to one of those meetings gave me a great quote. He said the main topic of conversation in those meetings was the stupidity of finance ministers and the quality of the wine. So you can see that that, 
very elitist approach continues. Now, you said uh, that there are 60 banks, central banks, that sort of go there and meet, but there are 120 customers. Can you give us an idea of uh, who those uh, customers are? The bank doesn't say who its customers are, and this is a big contradiction. I mean, we can guess that they're mostly central banks. I think most of the central banks of the world have an account there, probably some international organisations as well, I would believe that the International Committee of the Red Cross does as well because I found some documents in the BIS archives showing that they had dealings with the ICRC during the Second World War. But And this is the problem, you see, because the BIS says it's an international institution with a mission of public service. Well then, who are your customers? Uh, what are you doing for them? But central banks are not commercial organisations. They're managing public reserves. And this is why the secrecy that surrounds the BIS is so problematic. Because when the bankers meet there every two months, there's nothing released. There's no press release. There's no agenda. There's no minutes or anything of the discussions. Even though the people that go there are public servants, we're paying their salaries and their plane tickets and their pensions. Yes, we need some more information about what's going on at this bank and what the kind of discussions are taking place there. It's a meeting place for the central bankers. And during the crisis, it's been a very important meeting place. I had an interesting interview with Sir Mervyn King, and he said that you know this is a place where they've been able to discuss the different policies and the different mechanisms by which they can deal with the crisis. And so the BIS is more a kind of forum for that, and doesn't have an actual management role. And I give it some credit, during the mid-2000s, the BIS was one of the few organizations was actually warning and saying, look, guys, there's too much money sloshing around here and it's all going to end rather badly. So their predictions have come true. But I think the point is, is that we need to know much more about these discussions and, what, and who's there and what they're talking about because these are public servants. And so it's a contradiction to have the confidentiality of a commercial bank but the privileges of an international organisation. I think you're either one or the other. I mean, this is one of the strange things about the BIS is that it really operates under the radar. Now, we'll give it credit. It has a website, and on the website you can get the annual report, and it does have some information about how it works. But journalists don't seem to have picked up on it, and I think you're completely right, because Mark Hahn has been a pivotal figure at the BIS. He's a former member of the board of directors. He's a chairman of the Financial Stability Board. Now, what the Financial Stability Board, which most people have never heard of, is actually a very crucial, comparatively new international organisation. And it aims to coordinate regulatory and supervisory bodies for central banks around the world, in either being otherwise to try and, you know, avoid the kind of mess that we've got now. And Mr. Carney was also chairman of the Committee on the Global Financial System, another thing which most people have never heard of, which is hosted at the BIS and issues policy recommendations to central banks. So Mr. Khan is clearly a very you know, important person and his CV in these areas, I think, is actually much more interesting than his record as governor of the Bank of Canada because this is a good way to go in to say, you know, well, what are these organisations? What's their mandate? How do they work? What kind of things gust there? Financial stability has not been happening, uh, and the policy uh, reacting to the problems with the financial crisis in 2008, which they've been developing at BIS, which Mark has been developing, neither does that seem to have really been working. Well, I, I think you're highlighting an important issue here. I mean, where does the power of central banks come from? 
Now, obviously, in a democracy, you can't have the government telling the central banks what to do all the time, you know, boost money supply, cut money supply, you know, because they could, for example, engineer a mini boom just before an election by playing around with the money supply, and central banks have to have some degree of independence. But on the other hand, I think we need to know much more about how they're operating. And central banks themselves are more transparent than the BIS. You know, they do, Bank of England does release some minutes of its discussion, so does the Federal Reserve. But it seems like when they get to the BIS, the door shuts behind them, they've got all these legal immunities around them, and they're suddenly on kind of protected international territory, and we don't know what's going on there, and we should. What about the assets of the bank? Do we know how wealthy it is? Uh, yes, it's extremely wealthy. I mean, it, uh, its profits for last year were more than a, a billion dollars a year tax-free. Those are distributed some in dividends, some go back into the bank. So it's, a, it's, it's you know, regarded as one of the greatest places to do business with. It does provide a service as well. Say, if you're the governor of the central bank of Botswana, Estonia, you're unlikely to have the level of skills in asset management and liquidity supply that they can offer you at the BIS. So it, you know, it provides a service to these banks. And it, it has a lot of gold. The most recent statistics I had showed that it had around 119 tons of gold, which makes it the 30th largest holder around, the 30th largest gold holder, holder of gold reserves in the world, but more gold than Qatar or Canada. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a, a very, very rich institution. And at what point did money stop serving the populations and the people? Uh, and and um, at what point did it turn around where people started serving the money system? That's an interesting question. I, mean, I, don't, I don't think there's like any one kind of day when that happened. But I think when we talk about Britain, I think clearly there was a, a big shift in the Thatcher era and the immediate post-Thatcher era. And it's perhaps related to the big bang as well where you know the, the acquisition of money and the glorification of financial services happened and you know which led in part to the, the wild housing boom that's going on and the fact that you know it's a, it's a good point you raise i mean the fact is if, if you're a university student now and say you want to become a teacher unless your parents you know got the bank of mommy and daddy you're extremely difficult for you to ever to be able to, to own your own house and I think a part of that is, is related to the amount of money, you know, there just seems to be so much more money sloshing around the world. It was decided uh, at Bretton Woods to close the bank down. Why was that? Because it was seen as something that was helping the Nazis, as indeed it was. The BIS accepted looted Nazi gold. And the BIS did foreign exchange deals for the Reichsbank. And it was so helpful to the Reichsbank, the Nazi central bank, that Emil Pool the vice president of the Rice Bank and a BIS director said that the BIS was the Rice Bank's only foreign branch. So all of this was being watched in the States, especially by Henry Morgenthau, the Treasury Secretary, and his assistant, Harry Dexter White. And they pushed very hard at Bretton Woods for the bank to be closed down. But and although it was agreed that it would be, no date was set, so it never happened. Well, that's so strange, isn't bank it? Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Martin, the bank shouldn't exist. Uh, it was an attempt to close it down after World War II by the Americans. Um, in fact, they passed a resolution at Bretton Woods saying we've got to get rid of this bank because it was funding Hitler. 
Yes, but what happened uh, subsequently is that they thought Stalin was more more of a threat, and therefore what you know the 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 ex-Nazi structures, whatever they were, were integrated into the Western structures. Uh, so you know through Operation Paperclip, lots of ex-Nazis ended up living in Latin America, and that was winked at by the Western intelligence services because you know the game had moved on, and suddenly we're not fighting the Germans anymore. So the Bank of International Settlements stays as part of our team well we've heard of the imf international monetary fund we've heard of the world bank why haven't we heard of this bank the i the bis bank for international settlements which is actually far more important as a meeting place and a policy making place for all the central banks of the world i don't think it's clear who actually pulls the, the strings behind these opaque structures well mark IMF carney or... it seems mark carney is oh, actually yes. pulling the strings he's chairing the financial stability board he's uh, which is uh, is looking at po uh, basically drawing up policy another policy making body the committee on the global financial system he's also chairing that well more importantly he used to be a goldman sachs partner like all of them and that's what people have got to recognize is that we've got the intertwining of private and public interests here and when the, our, our correspondent there was saying well you can't have central banks run by governments because governments might want to stoke up mini booms to get elected and so on well that's what used to happen in britain whether it was the conservative or labor party in power what they tried to do was engineer a mini boom before elections it was normal practice now of course you could argue that that's not that's bad practice but it was normal practice in the past where it was the Bank of England was only made independent by Gordon Brown before that it had to obey orders well these uh, central bankers one of the things we know they're talking about we're not allowed to know anything else but one of the things Adam's found out Adam Libori was speaking to me from uh, Hungary earlier this week there uh, this the stupidity of the finance ministers and the quality of the wine well hang on a minute but those finance ministers are there to represent us not them well, this is the problem all through the whole system, isn't it? Uh, is that there are two constituencies that people in power are dealing with. One is the general population, who they have to keep happy somehow or other, and the other is the people with the money, who are the people who really call the shots. So are these so they're constantly being pulled in two directions. So are these people, the central bankers meeting at the BIS in secret, are they public servants or not? Well, they're public servants who also work in the private sector and go back to work in the private sector and so on. So in actual fact, the interests they represent are not those of the community at large. Perhaps we should nationalise the whole lot and make the uh, banking sector run by and for the community. Anyway, that book is out uh, last week. It's called The Tower of Basel, The Shadowy History of the Secret Bank That Runs the World, the inside story of the central banker's secret bank by Adam Lebor, L-E-B-O-I, who was speaking to me there early this week from Hungary. This and all previous episodes of the show are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. If you'd like to contact me, for suggestions for future shows, or indeed any other reason, email me unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie. Another break.